Friends, welcome to the Week in IndyCar listener Q&A. Recording this Monday a little bit after 5 p.m. Mrs. Pruitt put in another stellar afternoon at physical therapy. Got two cats staring out the window with a beautiful, beautiful blue sky and light clouds overhead. Rocky and Rosie. Uh, Rocky chased me in here and Rosie followed along. All that, here to tell you, it's basically a normal recording experience. Cats, me, my wife being amazing. Uh, I'm Marshall Pruitt. This is our little podcast that we do each week, driven by you and all the questions that you send in on our beloved topic of IndyCar. On occasion, when the mood suits me, I will crack open a beer and have that with the show a little bit different today. I don't know if it's coming across in the audio or if the old compression's taking care of that, but a little nasally, Mrs. Pruitt's been fighting, was fighting, sniffles, and I guess you could say a light cold, but a persistent cold for probably two months, all a byproduct of not having much of an immune system, unfortunately, and really awesome to say that over the weekend that went away, finally, and I don't know if after two months of not getting it, I got it, or if what I have with a little bit of sniffles and a little something going on is new, a gift from someone else, somewhere else, I don't know, but anyway, so no beer, a little bit of coffee, and some bone broth, so yeah, that's what we're drinking today. A couple quick items before we get rolling with your Q&A all brought to us by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Let's see. End of the week, we are supposed to be testing at Indianapolis. Two days of open testing is what's scheduled. Current forecast says it could be wet on Thursday. Obviously, with this forecast being multiple days before the event, plenty could change did call around and get a bit of insight from some teams and drivers, and they've been told things don't go down on Thursday. Going to try and get it all in on Friday by running late, and if both Thursday and Friday are a wash, that there is a fallback plan that nobody really wants, and that would be to run on Saturday. I know some drivers have things planned elsewhere, like our man Sebastian Bourdais, putting on the 10th anniversary Cart for Kids charity event in St. Petersburg, hopefully uh, raising money for local kids' hospitals. So got that going on that would have uh, not just Seb, but uh, a lot of the drivers who committed to help uh, unable to do that and put on the event, it sounds like, if we were to get rained out and have to run on Saturday. Let's see, there were supposed to be a driver announcement tomorrow for the Indy 500, tomorrow slash Tuesday or whenever you might be listening to this have learned that's been pushed back to later in the week. Uh, I've known about it for a while was asked by the team to uh, not share that news uh, for reasons of wanting to do a big deal and big splash with the sponsor for it. So just mentioned that we're expecting one or more confirmations coming here before the end of the week. Why one or more before the end of the week? Well, some of these drivers will indeed be in cars with those teams. Uh, So not everybody's been announced, but we are expecting to have 32 cars at the open test. So, 
yeah, going to have to reveal some of it before it just gets revealed organically by uh, flipping on the good old Peacock live stream, as we learned today, which will be going down for the test and used at plenty and plenty and plenty of events this year. So uh, that stuff's going on. What else can I tell you? You know, uh, after last week's show, I think late in the show, for reasons that I genuinely don't remember, I had just mentioned that uh, back in a happier place now, but been dealing with uh, vaguely serious levels of depression for about a month, maybe a little bit longer beforehand, as with most things in my life, just a bit of a throwaway thing. Ended up being late in the episode. Nonetheless, uh, I want to say thank you to all of you, and there were many of you who reached out and offered either kind words of encouragement or acknowledge they've been dealing with the same. And yeah, uh, there is no real artifice that we try and put on here. It's just me being my uh, genuine self, which is often flawed and rarely excellent, but hey, that's me. And so I just mentioned that because there's uh, a nice little note here that was sent in by Horatio Frey said, I wanted to thank you for keeping things real. Your honesty regarding your struggles with depression says from the outside, We see this as the coolest job, getting to talk to our heroes whenever you want, but it's a good reminder to us all that you're just a normal guy with human problems like the rest of us. I wanted to read the the note up front, not so much because it was pointed at me, but just one of the things that I enjoy most about doing this show, where it truly is just us. I know that there's a lot of you who listen and don't submit questions. Actually, there's a tiny fraction, like single-digit percent, Uh, in a low single-digit percent of listeners who submit questions. Uh, The the 90-plus percent of those who do listen don't submit questions. And so just sharing that we do this in a communal way, often through many of the same kind folks who submit questions each week, gives us the, the space to go down whatever alley, talk about whatever, and share that with everyone, all of us uh, who are IndyCar fans. And the thing that I've enjoyed most are the connections that have come with this. I don't, I couldn't even begin to count how many of you I have gotten to know over the last however many years of this podcast through this dumb little show on a weekly basis and the kind of human connection stuff that comes from it could be a DM or an email or whatever it is. And it's folk sharing, whether it's depression, a lost loved one, a medical fight, a financial issue, whatever it is. It's amazing and greatly appreciated to know that we can go a little bit deeper here. And I feel totally comfortable, whether it's late in the show as a throwaway or here up front, Uh, Thanks to Horatio and his note just to say, hey, I appreciate you. I thank you for listening. I thank you for sharing with me, whether they're just the racing questions or some of the stuff about your private life. This is the reason why, except for maybe one week week out of the year, I make sure that we do this show at all times because we get to uh, connect on a pretty cool family-like level. All right, let's get going with your questions as usual we kick things off with bigger or biggest topic of the week and visit with that one a little bit longer than the others and then get moving and hey 
Surprise, surprise. What's the uh, first one we're diving into with a little bit of music beds help? That would be Texas. It would be the test last week. And it would be two letters and one number that not a lot of us have come to love in the world of IndyCar. This is the good old PJ1 traction compound goo. Jameen Tuttle, you are leading the charge among, oh boy, a lot of questions here about Texas. Jake Wynn, our pal Hire Lee, Jeremiah Morrell, Trip Hazard, Rob Ball, Ethan Patrick, Stitch Turner. Holy cow, we got a Stitch Turner question. Steve Grinstead, Ross Porter. Oh boy. So Jameen, you're going to lead things off among the Texas questions. Says, with the news out of Texas. The second groove in turns one and two still being sketchy. What's your opinion on it? Reads like turns three and four may be better, and the new downforce may help. So as I rewatched last year's race, and it wasn't great, but it wasn't terrible, can we still have a good Texas race this year? Boy, uh, and a lot of you ask similar things. Um, let's see, Ross Porter, I'll roll yours in too, to Jameen says, there much that can be done before we go back to improve that second groove we're running later into the evening help negate some of the temperature effects of the darker upper groove yeah it's this weird thing right where what was it 2019 the uh, pj1 was applied at nascar's request to the upper lane ended up working for those cars and great 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 not so much us uh, we are aero dependent, aerodynamically dependent. We, yeah, mechanical grip is certainly very important to us. It is all important to the NASCAR cup cars and other stock cars that run at Texas. They do have aerodynamics, but it's not a huge portion of how they make their lap time through the corners. It's a lot of weight. There's a lot of natural forces burying them into the track surface. Works well with those, with the PJ1. Also, the type of tires that they use, the uh, sidewalls, just they have big old sidewalls. Uh, they can absorb and move, and we don't have those so much. And that's not a negative or criticism of, of Firestone in any way, just the dynamics are very different between these two types of cars that makes this traction compound a problem for us for a couple of reasons. So instead of getting into all the ways the compound is problematic, the PJ1 stuff, I actually just need to focus here. I know some of you may already know this, but some may not. Uh, the issues that were had last year really stemmed from the cleanup effort and it's a funky thing the low line the bottom groove the single lane that ended up getting used and really being the only place that could get used found that if you wandered up onto the place where the pj1 formerly sat on top of the track surface uh, you had problems. Why is that? Well, that bottom lane, Firestone rubber, getting being shed and dug into the track, ends up being a bit like Velcro. So the Firestone rubber, the car is going round and round in that bottom lane, running on top of Firestone rubber that's been 
buried into the track surface, hand and glove, Velcro, just you name it, locked in place, good to go. Moving up to the darker upper second lane, and two things going on. You had remnants of the PJ1 still in the track, but below the the surface, right? We know that this is not billiard smooth. There's obviously pockets and divots just throughout the entire thing. The reason it's dark is not because of the PJ1 sitting on top of the track surface. It's actually down inside the little valleys, the little miniature valleys throughout the entire area where it was applied. So you have two things going on here. During the day, as Ross mentioned, you have a hotter second lane. Track surface, hotter for sure. Hotter air being thinner. Cars running over, or indie cars trying to, say, straddle it. Uh, and I'm just using theoreticals here. Say, half on the lower clean lane with Firestone rubber. Upper tires, outside tires, right side tires. On the PJ1, where the PJ1 is down below the surface, you just have a hotter surface. You have hotter everything coming off the track where the PJ1 is applied, and you have a mismatch uh, of, of air density um, in those areas. So that's a problem. So heat, yeah. Uh, during the day, especially if it just hasn't been in a sundown situation and cooled down enough, yes, definitely a problem. One of the drivers that I spoke with last week after the test said, yes, boy, I tell you, <laughs> the, uh, the effects of the heat getting on to that track where the PJ1 portion is applied. It, it's causing problems just in and of itself. The second issue here, which is the primary issue that was had, is the scrubbing ish effort, the cleaning initiative to remove the PJ1 from the surface itself. And all I've ever been told is it was a very successful endeavor. And as a result, there is actually less traction available up into that PJ1 lane. So bottom lane, first lane, not a problem with grip. Firestone rubber is put down, Firestone rubber is on top of Firestone rubber, everything's good hand in glove. Move up into the PJ1 lane, and there is no rubber there. There's no traction compound sitting on top to meet and grab a tire. It's actually slipperier by going up there because no one's running on it, and there's no goo to try and help the problem. Plus, again, in sunlight or uh, non-nighttime conditions, you have that other component of it just being hotter and messing things up even more aerodynamically. Those are the issues. And yes, so cleaning it, it's not a case of the stuff sitting on top of the track surface. It's the inverse. Uh, there's nothing there. It looks like there's something there, and there is below the contact points where the tires are touching the ground uh, on the right side, or if you were to go up and put the whole car up there. So that's one issue. Um, they The track has said they still plan to keep on trying to clean and remove and make everything uniform, 
it'd be interesting if they could do that. Get back to a matching surface, first lane and second lane. I don't pretend to know all the methods they might use to do that. Heard about the washing it with lime and, and something caustic and acidic to try and do that. All I know is, boy, this thing they did in 2019 sure seems to be having long-term repercussions for lightweight, aerodynamically dependent open-wheel race cars. Can we get back to the way it was before pre-PJ1? I really don't know. Um, This is something where there have been some interesting suggestions of hey will power for example uh in a interview that he did with a new racer team member joey barnes saying well hey how about giving us an extra set of tires and we'll just have everyone go out and run around that upper second lane and that's how we're going to work rubber in from the good stuff what we want with firestone and then that will become an option i mean it sounds good it sounds like a great idea. Whether it would work or not, I don't fully know. Another piece of really fascinating insight from a driver that I spoke with after the test as well said, you know, part of what uh, Firestone is trying to do is to create more grip to help us get through the corner. So that's great. And that's been done by going to a uh, a softer compound on the left side tires. Negative that I heard from that was because the left sides were a little bit easier to chew up faster, a uh, softer compound, shedding more tire marbles. And those marbles, again, if we're just looking at the G-forces, those are going to go up the track, get flung up the track, and so you had this treacherous scenario. Ended up catching our man Bourdais out, by the way, who crashed towards the end of the test. And that was a really serious line of marbles just above that bottom clean Firestone lane. And so he said, just got the right front tire up into the the darker pj1 lane a little bit not a lot but a little bit and got onto the marbles waiting for him there and just that just sent the car crashed and uh it it dinged that thing up pretty darn good so could we have drivers go out with a special set and 20 plus cars lapping i don't know if they're doing 200 plus through turns one and two but at whatever speed uh, would be helpful in applying Firestone rubber. I love that idea, willpower. Um, but there's also the question of, unless that second lane becomes heavily used in the race, you're going to be looking at the same magnified problem of marbles coming off, getting up into that second lane, and being the squirrely, wow, watch out, we're going to crash type scenario that Seb encountered. So, boy, I wish I felt like, ah, do this one thing or two things or three things back to same old, same old, and we're all good. I think if 
Texas Motor Speedway, the good folks at Texas Motor Speedway, could find a way to truly remove all remnants of PJ1, uh, go back to matchy-matchy com- uh, contact colors, sun not heating up one more than the other, and just really slate has been wiped clean goo has been wiped clean and hey can we just really start investing into making that second lane come alive by having cars run up there i guess i think there is a possibility but yeah everything short of getting it off the track 100 percent seems like it's just going to leave a bit of a compromised situation uh let's see stitch turner how you doing stitch uh i'd like to further geek out on this if grip has improved any further how long before we start getting into the territory of g related health issues says according to the reported times of the most recent test uh we were getting to about within a second of lap times cart was running back in their ill-fated test yeah true if we're talking lap time uh one thing about the difference between using seconds to quantify differences in performance from one ear to the next on an oval versus mile per hour is one second around Texas motor speedway is a giant amount of speed difference. So not a whole lot there, my friend stitch, uh, Steve Grinstead said, have you talked with any drivers that were at the test? Is it something that any car can fix? By putting cones out for an extra practice, no cars can run below the cones. Also says, congratulations on your first COVID shot. I was fortunate enough to be one and done. Uh, Let's see. Brian Smith. Um, Sorry, Steve. Yeah, the idea of cones. I don't know if I want to put cones on the track, but um, this general idea of how can we use Indy cars to solve the problem uh, it, it's certainly one that has merit. Brian Smith, you threw in one here related. He said, if the issue at Texas is a lack of rubber, as Graham Rahal suggested, isn't the answer paying Texas Speedway CEO Eddie Gossage to run the tire dragon around the upper groove for a while before the weekend starts? Funny you mentioned that, Brian. Just by sheer coincidence, yesterday, I think. I think it was yesterday. I don't know. Maybe it was today. Whatever it was. Uh, Facebook memory popped up. And it was a stupid little video that I shot uh, 2018, I think, at uh, Texas, good Lord, Phoenix. And it was my monkey butt standing out in turn four on, I don't know, it was like the Thursday of the event, Wednesday, whenever it was. And indeed, that was the whole little two-minute video of, hey, they've tried everything to get the the upper lane and turn one and two to work and kind of sort of three and four, and they can't. So they have hired the tire dragon to come out and here's a little video and I'm yappity yapping into the microphone and then we cut and the tire dragon goes by and it's basically just a little tractor, uh, which has this cool device behind it where you mount the tire of whatever uh, series you're wanting to apply to say the unused lane and in this case, it was four Firestone rear IndyCar tires, and it has a nice little hydraulic, hydraulically activated ram, 
and the operator of the the little tractor just basically deploys it which pushes the uh four tires onto the ground and they do rotate but not freely there's a lot of drag so the dragon part of tire dragon is really dragging and so would run basically counter direction on the tires which is so truly scraping kind of if you've ever used a cheese grater or something like that it's kind of that action uh going uh counter direction on the track spinning the tires digging in that rubber into the track surface so they did that for the 2018 race i believe was it 19 whenever it was 18 i think but whatever uh the last time we were there and all in the hope of hey we're going to turn this into a good race. People are going to be able to pass and go high and low and what? And it didn't work at all. <laughs> it did nothing. <laughs> I mean, if it, I shouldn't say that. I'm sure it did something. But, you know, did the second lane go from being 0% feasible to 10% feasible? You know, I'm sure that it had some effect, but not enough to be used in the race did nothing got us nowhere am i saying the tire dragon's a failure no i'm not clearly they have it and made it and offer a service and it gets used i just know that in the one time that i watched it get applied during an indycar event and i was one of few people there who did nothing other than just stand and watch and listen and try and see how it worked and how it might make a difference and it didn't so who knows is there something about texas motor speedway's surface uh brian that would allow the tire dragon to really succeed where it failed at phoenix i don't know i can just tell you from the one sample that i saw of it being applied uh if it was the only hope of having a great race at texas i'd be very depressed uh let's see where else can we go where can we go uh ethan patrick hey ethan says okay follow me here everyone's afraid of the pj1 at texas for making a boring race so what's the argument against putting pj1 down from apron to wall ensuring the same level of grip no matter what line you choose seems more cost effective to me uh to take this approach rather than to try and wash it away as they're presently doing and if that provides a lack of grip in the turns well i guess you'll have to pedal it in the turns the way it should be um i guess there's that approach i hadn't really thought of uh knowing that it's only been presented as a problem for our cars ethan i guess my mind just defaults 100 percent to make the problem go away um you mentioned here well if there is a lack of grip maybe you just have to pedal it uh that hasn't really been the case in indycar for decades like really truly uh going quickly around a high speed oval in the corners you know it's the thing that sets indy cars apart from anything else that might race there so i mean philosophically should there be lifting and all kinds of stuff and catching slides sure i mean i'm thinking 1950s indy car and early 60s with roadsters more than anything but where the issue is here is if there's a lack of grip 
uh, yeah, then you have a lot of people single file going slowly. And so that does not promote passing. That promotes a lot of people not accelerating or being afraid to accelerate. And if the penalty for going too quickly or accelerating too hard is there's no grip and you spin and crash in these cars, you get a lot of folks that say, hey, uh, I'm in the midst of a championship and this is a double header and I want to win the championship. So guess who's not going to be a cowboy or a cowgirl and just romp that throttle and, and be super daring. I know the romantic thought is, oh, well, you just got to try harder. Yeah, these are aerodynamic creatures. And until the day comes where they stop being that, if you take away the thing that provides the grip in the corners, um, you don't get great racing. And so we've seen this. We've seen it at Texas, actually, where IndyCar decided, what, nine, eight, nine years ago, hey, we're going to go low down force. And it got a little bit exciting at the end with people running out of grip and sliding and smacking the wall and doing all kinds of stuff. But for the most part, the racing really, really sucked because nobody could do anything daring or fun and no one dared try for fear of the repercussions and ending up in the wall. So I hear you, but to me, it's either, as you mentioned, all PJ1, and in theory, maybe hopefully it works for us, or none. But the kind of halfway there thing, yeah, I don't know if that's going to help. Uh, let's see. Rob Ball, oh, I'm going to read through your question here. Um, similar to, uh, to Ethan's. See, Hrishi Deshpond, how you doing, Hrishi? says, so this PJ1 track bite stuff, has it permanently ruined the second lane? Um, yeah, I again, I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. I mean, it, it, it has the feeling of a tramp stamp, right? It's the Texas tramp stamp. Come and see it in turn one, two... Uh, this thing where you go, oh, man, it must have been a drunken late-night thing. We got this thing applied, and dang it, man, it sure isn't coming off easily. So I hope the uh, the track bite tramp stamp goes away quickly, my friend. Uh, let's see, where else should we go here before we move on to next question? Uh, our pal Jeremiah Morell, hello to you and your much better half. Mrs. Morell says, need to pull out all the stops to make Texas a great race. Can't have back-to-back snoozers. Boy, I could not agree with you more, Jeremiah. Uh, we're going to close this subject with Jake Wynn. Let's say that the races at Texas are a total flop, uh, looking quite possible uh, with the PJ1 solution. If you could have any oval track, replace it. Which would you choose and why? Oh, boy. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of that because I do really love that circuit. Atlanta comes to mind, if I'm thinking of a bigger oval, for sure. Was there last, I don't even remember the year I would have been there last. Whenever, what, 
99, 2000, something like that, at least in the old IRL days. Yeah, wow, that place was quick, and I seem to recall it putting on some pretty good pretty good races back then. That jumps out. Know that there's a variety of non-racing problems related to our not going back to Iowa, but I do wish we were going back to Iowa. I mean, that race is always just like, holy crap. So, yeah, um, at least similar to Texas, I'd say, hey, let's go to Atlanta. And if we're just not even trying to do a, a similar replacement, let's make Iowa happen somehow, somehow. Either that or uh, do we go and do the, the BC39 inside turn three dirt short oval at IMS? Yes, I believe we do. Even though we've discussed ad nauseum how the current DW12 chassis really isn't capable of doing that without money being spent and significant modifications being made. Look at this. Thanks to our pal Jim Kaiser. He's done a wonderful job now for the second week of putting our questions together after our beloved pal Tim Falkwitz said, hey, need to pass the baton. Uh, two first-time questioners in a row. Uh, so let's move on from Texas. We're going to go to our pal Robert C. Foss from Facebook. Hey, Robert. This is a very long-time listener, first-time questioner. says, you've seen Jimmy Johnson in testing. You've talked to him and his team. He's got the best team, strategists, engineers, and teammates. There's no question he has the talent and the motivation. So hashtag your personal opinion. Uh, what will be Jimmy's biggest challenge at Barber? Tire management, fuel management, or outright single lap speed and qualifying. Uh, just adds a kind closing note. Thanks for what you do for the sport and continued prayers for you and your incredible warrior bride. He says, know that your dedication to her to her is an inspiration to so many of us. Well, that's just silly, silly and nice, Robert. What else would I do, man? It's my girl. Uh, okay. Should mention that I spent half hour, 45 minutes on the phone with Jimmy. I don't know. It wasn't this last Friday. I think it was a Friday before. Um, pretty heavily on this topic. And the day or two before that, I spent maybe even longer on the phone with uh, our man Dario Franchitti for a feature coming next week on building Jimmy Johnson. Uh, building Jimmy Johnson into an IndyCar driver with his coach and also the uh, the pupil weighing in on it. So some pretty cool insights there. I know that one of the things Dario mentioned, which will probably be in the story, was how impressed he was at Jimmy's growth from his debut at Barber in an Indy car to his return to Barber recently for his second go-round in testing there. And he said you know, he was way off the first time, as you'd expect. Guys new to all of, truly 100% new to all this stuff. Coming back with a few more Indy car tests under his belt and to a track that he knew, he said he was less than a second off of his much more experienced teammates. That might not sound like a lot, but oh my goodness, it is. So I share that, Robert, because he's going to go out on Firestone Reds for the first time in qualifying. Rules do allow you to use them beforehand, so I the team might decide to send him out uh, in 
uh, the final practice session before qualifying end of that session to get a feel for reds to at least get a read on them it's going to shorten their lifespan and shorten his uh tire inventory quality compared to other teams uh and entries that don't do that but uh, you'll still see a couple teams do that go out on reds towards the end of that session nonetheless he's going to go into qualifying even if he's been on reds for that one limited period in practice he's going to go out and qualifying and have no idea how much potential is waiting for him with those tires he'll get a glimpse of it provided they send him out uh, in the practice session but true knowledge of whoa i know the firestone primaries the ones with no band around them the firestone reds the alternates do these give me an extra such and such under braking, such and such percentage in cornering, acceleration, and blah, blah, blah. What is the peak potential of these? And how long does that peak last? Where do I find it? Is it waiting for me at the start of my first flying lap? Do I need to put two laps in to get them up to temperature? Do they last Peak again, peak peak deliverance is that one lap, two laps? Uh, it tends not to be three or four, <laughs> sometimes not fully two as well. And so, if you don't know what they're going to offer at their maximum potential, which is why you use them, they give you more. If you don't how much know how much more is there, it's often hard to get all of it. So, he's not going to do great on reds. Pretty much every new driver to the series does not, so that would not be uncommon. Um, And so what's his qualifying going to be like? It's probably going to be messy. It's probably going to be him exploring and whether it's locking up a brake or not braking hard enough or, 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 or. So where's Jimmy going to qualify in a field of 24, 25 cars? If he's anything other than last, it'll be a victory. It'll be a true victory. I expect him to be on the last row. And none of this has anything to do, Robert, with his talent or future capabilities once he knows the car and everything better. If he's not last or next to last, I'll be shocked. And, you know, he and I have had that conversation more than once, and none of it was said in a negative way, and it wasn't received in a negative way. Of course, he doesn't want that, but he knows that, it's a zillionth of a second difference between making the Firestone Fast 12 or being that person in 13th. That's another thing we discussed, both of us, Dario and uh, Jimmy and I discussed. What's the guaranteed quote you read at every road and street course from the person qualified 7th and 13th? It's more or less the same thing every time. Ah, oh, a bird farted flying in front of me and that little puff of wind slowed me down a trillionth of a second and that's all it took for me to miss the fast 12 or the fast six it's a millionth of a second the fractions of a nanosecond that separate you from being in the fast 12 or 13th or in the fast sixth or seventh guaranteed basically every quote every road and street course race you hear the same thing so imagine being the guy who doesn't know any of this stuff He's not going to, I mean, a millionth of a second is something he would love to be shy of. It's not going to be that. It's going to be more. It's just going to be more. And so 
just wanted to give you some of these bigger pictures here. Uh, fuel management and that kind of stuff. I don't think that's going to be a huge thing. The team's worked on him uh, from the outset on fuel saving and all that kind of stuff. So I think he'll be okay there. Uh, but let's talk about hot pit stops. He's never done a hot pit stop with other cars uh, in his life in IndyCar, right? He's done tons of pit stops at tests where he's coming into the box on his own and leaving, and they'll set tires out to basically block his enter, easy entry in, simulate a car being behind him uh, in their pit box, so having to come in and slow and make the hard left and then the hard right or whatever else it might be. Uh, and exiting out, so it's not just a straight exit, but having to cut the wheel hard and pull out like there's a car in front of him. But again, simulated. Uh, it's going to be a lot different with crewmen from other teams and crew women from other teams running out and back and forth and tire hoses in the way. And I realize he's done all the stuff in Cup, but here, eh, not so much. So. Biggest challenge, my friend? Yes, the is the answer. What's going to be the biggest challenge? Yes. <laughs> it's going to be all. Uh, it's going to be, hey, big balance change once we're getting down towards the end of a fuel tank. And what does that do and how does he adjust for it? Of course, he's going to have a great coach on the radio uh, in his race engineer, Eric Cowden. Hey, I want to move the front anti-roll bar here you might want to do that right so they're going to be coaching him the whole way but there's that i know what to do i know what i'm feeling i know how to react those things are not first nature much less second or third nature it's just going to take a while so as dario said and you'll read in the piece what he's looking forward to is second half jimmy let's get the first half of the season done Let's learn from all those things. Let's build up that uh, mental database, that experiential database on Firestone Reds versus Firestone Blacks and just pit stops, race strategy, fuel strategy, balance changes. Hey, you went too hard and you burned down your tires. And guess what? Tire degradation was always going to be a thing at whatever track we're at. And... For those who know how to manage their tires better, yes, they can get 80% through a stint before deg starts to become an issue. Well, not knowing these things, you push too hard in the beginning, and you've got deg halfway through your stint. And, oh boy, you're going to be losing tons of time. And so how do you do that and not get overtaken by everybody? How do you do that and not... Uh, over defend and get a penalty for blocking it's can paint a hundred different scenarios robert where despite being so wickedly talented the everything about indycar is what's new to him compare that to a guy like romain groschon of course there's not identical but seemingly almost as many differences for him to grasp as well. But what's the one big difference? Uh, knows different tire compounds, knows hardcore knockout qualifying, knows open wheel cars, knows turbocharged engines, knows, 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 knows. He's going to every track for the first time. 
uh, other than those that he's tested at. But we're just talking a real race weekend. It's all going to be new for him. He's going to struggle on reds initially, but that struggle should be much shorter uh, than Jimmy, for example. Uh, Scott McLaughlin, although he's done a race weekend at St. Pete, uh, he's still going to have a lot to learn about reds. They're not identical at every track, obviously. There's um, different versions that Firestone will make. So Groschon, though, he's a guy who is going to go through so many of the same things, but we just expect him to pick them up faster because open-wheel racing and so many of the things that we have in IndyCar aren't terribly different than what he's been doing at a higher level in F1. So thanks again for the kind note about my uh, warrior bride, Robert. I love that phrase. And yeah, if you're a fan of Jimmy Johnson, just keep rooting for him. And when things are problematic, as they're going to be for the first while, as he tries to erase that massive learning curve, if you're a fan of Jimmy... Don't hesitate to send him a lot of kind and supportive social media messages because he's going to need them, knows he needs going to need them, and um, I love the fact that he acknowledges, oh, no, this isn't going to be easy, but I'm in. Uh, and he has a nice little surprise in our, our conversation about his desire to do IndyCar and for how long, too. So, um, yeah, going to get there just not right away. Uh, hey, second time in a row, we've got a new person asking a question. Uh, this comes from at pain tour, 1911 on Twitter. I'm a little bit scared to ask about how you came up with that handle. I get the 1911 part, the pain tour. Ooh. Uh, Hey MP first time, long time says the 500 has long been promoted as annually holding the attendance record for a single day sporting event. How is this confirmed? Who is or was the sanctioning body to this accounting? Is someone lucky enough to be sent to IMS each year to confirm it? Great question. I'm going to have to make some assumptions here. I'll try not to make an ass out of you and me, of course. I believe this was a Guinness Book of World's Record thing at some point. Uh, so there's that. I believe the general accounting number of 350-ish thousand people uh, has been around for a little while. We know that former Indianapolis star reporter, uh, now a little while long, however long, indie communications employee Kurt Cavan uh, will always be remembered as the person who counted every seat at IMS. What was the number? It was like 278,000, I think, or something like that. Uh, this was what years and years ago. So, you know, couldn't tell you how many seats have been moved, changed or otherwise since then. But so if you take that 278 or so, it's not always a sellout, uh, but you add in the people in the infield and the, uh, hospitality suites and the blah, 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 blah. And again, the, the average number, who knows what that is year to year. Is it 275? Is it 300, 350? Were there years where it might have been 400, potentially so? My guess, well, I am unaware of any, quote, accounting firm coming to put a hard number on it on an annual basis. It's not like this is some sort of, there's no <laughs> government agency of accuracy in crowd size estimation. Uh, 
I do believe there was a credible baseline that led to the 350-ish number being used for a long time. Sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less, but that being a general number. And after that, it's one of those things where once you have it, I don't know if most places really work to try and make sure that they have an external accounting firm verifying that number. It's kind of the, hey, we're the world's biggest this, and unless there's something else that's come along to rival it and maybe have that number verified, I think things like this just stand, right? Until there's a challenger, I don't know if there's a reason for anyone to really question the general claim that Indianapolis Motor Speedway holds the largest single-day sporting event in the world, that being the Indy 500. So um, it would be funny, though. Maybe we need to send a fake letter to IMS, a cease and desist. Prove that your 2020 crowd was the largest. No, sorry. Sorry, too soon? Too soon? Sorry, too soon. Uh, But I think there's some fun to be had at someone's expense here. I need to think about it. Uh, Let's see. Andrew Drybelbis. How are you doing, Andrew? At a Drew D on the Twitters. And you were one of very few people who sent in something I thought was going to get a real reaction. And that was confirmation of what I... I couldn't say that it was a done deal because I didn't know it was a 100% done deal, but I knew that it was basically a done deal when I did my uh, first... Indy 500 entry list story, whatever, a week or two ago about Santino Ferrucci driving for Ray Hall Edelman Lanigan. So Andrew says, with the news of Santino driving for RLL at this year's Indy 500, why do you think they chose a one-off driver instead of a guy like Spencer Piggott that could grow this car into a full-time entry? Says Santino is now on the NASCAR track and RLL has teased us for years with that third entry. Interesting here, Andrew. I might parse from your question and the phrasing that possibly not the biggest Santino Ferrucci fan. A um, couple quick things here. If you think about Spencer's participation with RLL in, what, 2016, making his Indy 500 debut... Then again, last year in partnership with Citroen Buell, in both instances, his ride was paid for. In this instance, I don't know what money Santino is bringing, but I do know that they announced High V Supermarket as the primary sponsor for that car, and then also an associate for the year on Graham's entry. Uh... Should I park this for just a second and apologize or clarify a little bit about this announcement today? So Santino's driving the number 45 Honda. In the press release that went out from the team, it included a photo of Graham's car in high V colors, uh, that being the number 15 entry. So there was a mismatch. Santino announced driving the high V car, number 45. Supplied image, number 15. Uh, submitted this for publication on Racer, uh, noting that Centino is driving the number 45, 
and it was changed to number 15 to match the car, uh, which led to some confusion, rightful confusion from readers saying, uh, isn't Graham Rahal number 15? Uh, yeah. So went back and, uh, unfixed what I filed and put it back to what it was originally. Uh, but nonetheless, yeah, little bit of a confusion here of car numbers and who was what and yeah, yeah, yeah. So sorry for all that. Um, with this scenario though, Andrew, instead of Spencer being in the car, if we think about Oriol Servia being in the car in the past, Michel Jourdain being in the car in the past and right. Some others who've been in this third Indy 500 RLL situation, they've all brought money, primary money, the money that makes the entire thing possible or the vast majority with this decision. And I would expect Santino to bring some budget. But with this, it would appear from the outside that the thing Bob Rahal has wanted and teased for a couple of years of having their own sponsor so they can pick and choose who they want or have more leverage in doing that instead of having to take someone with a budget who covers the whole thing, it would appear that they were afforded this opportunity through high V and chose to work with Santino. Now, I'd heard Santino had spoken with a number of teams, um, again, had some money to bring, but was certainly not uh, sitting there with a big stonking wad of cash to uh, get in wherever he wanted. Having to read the tea leaves from afar, Andrew, uh, I would say that there was a desire to have Santino in this car uh, for driving merit now at least one other person took great umbrage on social media with santino being announced for the car and so on and so forth i understand that he might not be everyone's favorite driver if i strip away the personal side i would have to say that where has this guy made his name in indycar across the two full seasons that he did before moving to NASCAR. Not only is it on ovals, it's at the Indy 500. So as the defending race winners with good old Takuma Sato, someone we expect to be quick yet again, Graham tends to rise to the challenge at the speedway. Having a Ferrucci who's been one of the stars of the show the last couple of years, finished seventh as a rookie, rookie of the year, I believe fourth last year driving for Dale Coyne. No disrespect to Dale Coyne, but Dale Coyne ain't Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan. And yeah, this kid has brought the heat the last two years. Well, if he can bring a little bit of money and you've got a team sponsor wanting to step up and you're looking at who's out there, who can get the job done and truly give you a third potential winning entry, not just a, you know, hey, it's going to be good. And yeah, you're bringing us some money and the money is probably the thing we enjoy the most. Nothing against Spencer. Spencer's a phenomenal race car driver. If I had to pick between the two and they both brought equal money, I'm going with Ferrucci at the 500. I don't think there's any real secret. I don't have a whole lot of of flowery things to say about him uh, outside the car. But we're not talking about uh, who you want to have dinner with, more or less, and that being the pivot on which one you choose. If we're talking strict... When the green flag waves to when the checkered flag waves, 
which one of these two is going to strike fear in the heart of those in front of them and likely pass those people and put on a show and finished very, very well. I'm going with Santino Ferrucci. So I understand that with Santino's current NASCAR arc, it is hard to build something for the future, obviously, because he's not going to be here at least this year after Indy. True, but to my knowledge, Andrew, RLL isn't sitting on a budget to run that third car to build on uh, anytime soon. And so I think their approach of, hey, we're going to have this third car for one race and let's get the most out of it and help ourselves the most. And who would be best to do that? Uh, I think they have gone in a pretty darn smart direction. Now, if the guy wads it up on turn one of the race and knocks out half the field, okay. Uh, But if all we have to go by is data, which is the truth, he's had two poor qualifyings and improved like 15 positions or more in his two starts, finished both races, completed every single lap. Seventh and fourth, 400 laps completed. Those are numbers that are really hard to ignore. Uh, Daniel Summerskill says, with Santino being confirmed at RLL, how difficult is it for a driver to make a successful comeback to IndyCar, having just started to learn an entirely different car and style of racing in the NASCAR Xfinity series. I would say in his case, probably none knowing that he completed the 2020 season familiar with the arrow screen and how it affects things. Uh, he's done. Yes. He has done some Xfinity series races, but by no means enough for me to start referring to him as a NASCAR driver. Right? He's still an IndyCar driver who's done a handful of Xfinity events. I don't foresee any issue here whatsoever, Daniel. I think, you know, by the end of his first day in the car, if he's not up there with wherever Sato and Graham happen to be on the speed chart, I'll be very surprised. Uh, let's see. We're going to close this topic of Brian Burrell. Uh, looking at the one-offs and limited schedules for uh, Indy this year, who has the best odds? Montoya among those one-offs. Uh, Ed Carpenter, or limited schedule types. Ed Carpenter, Elio, Tony Kanon, Charlie Kimball, Simona, Ferrucci, Sage. Who else? Hmm. I would say, boy, the Aero McLaren SP team sure feels like a real... I don't know, can we even call him a dark horse? After Pato finished fourth in the standings last year, uh, just in general, they feel like with Pato there, Felix there, Montoya coming in for the 500, you know, we'll find out. Famous last words, but man, I feel like they're going to be tough at the 500. And with JPM in the mix, uh, there are a few drivers who are tougher. So, yeah, I'm going to go in that direction. I'm going to lean there. Um... I could offer some insights on some of the other names here mentioned, but I don't want to because I'd reveal some things that I shouldn't. So uh, uh, maybe we can talk a little bit more about that next week, Brian. Uh, Ross Porter, MP, I saw on the Extreme E Instagram page where they had a cameraman with a jetpack following one of their vehicles. Did you now? Did you happen to see that on April 1st? Uh, it says, how long 
till we see you or Miller harassing people for interviews in the paddock with a jetpack. Oh, Ross Porter, I love you. Uh, Miller did work. Me, I mean, what are we talking about? Like a jet strapped to my fat behind? Like not a jet pack, but an actual jet. Might We might need the thrust from a true military jet to uh, lift my behind off the ground. I do love that idea, though. But the problem is I'd be just dropping things on drivers all the time. Granted, provided if they couldn't hear me, if I could sneak up on them, it'd be nonstop eggs, pouring Gatorades on their head. I mean, it. I they wouldn't let me have the jet pack for very long because truly I'd just turn it into an episode of Jackass and yeah, um, hijinks would ensue and then they would take the toy away. Uh, let's see, Jeremiah Morell, you're back. Says Marshall's Cristobal moment. Toronto is still on the July calendar. Canada's only achieved 12% vaccination rate to this point. Uh, says, well, every American 18 or older now has access. Uh, for Canadians, it's a patchwork of essential workers and high risk folks. Asks, when is the go or no go date on Toronto 2021? And is it possible that, that the date shifts to, say, Portland or Mid-Ohio is a double header um, to keep the same number of races on the calendar? Boy, let's see. How should I answer this mighty fine question you have sent in, my friend? Need to make a call in the morning, Jeremiah, to our friends at Green Savory Race Promotions to get a little bit of an update on the subject. And I need to do that so I can gain knowledge to then use or not use in a story that I have ready to go that would answer your second question in a very basic way. So, uh, sorry, buddy. I always try and give you everything that I can, but uh, I can't give away work that is intended for my client first. Uh, but, yeah, should have an answer for you here very shortly. Uh, Jonathan Green, any weird or wacky predictions before the season begins? Ooh, weird and wacky predictions. By the end of the season... Without a doubt, Will Power will be a normal person. No, that ain't happening. That's not happening at all. Weird or wacky predictions? Jeez, I don't. I mean, what can we? Uh, what can we come up with? Here's one that I don't know if it's weird or wacky, but I'll throw it in, and it's truly the only thing that comes to mind. Uh, Jimmy Johnson will be a Chip Ganassi Racing IMSA driver once we're done with this season, both IndyCar and IMSA. That's a prediction I'm making. And if it comes true, what do I get? Uh, not a cookie. I haven't had sweets for a couple years now. Um, just buy me a good coffee. That's all I'm asking. Uh, let's see, where do we go? Because I got nothing for you here beyond that. Alexander Mack, MP, for any reason, a driver is unable to race on a given weekend this season who do you think is at the top of the list around the paddock as far as a replacement driver might go? That's an interesting one to answer, Alexander, because it's proximity that tends to be the thing. Meaning, hey, uh, it's Friday and so-and-so just threw up in their helmet and we need someone to be in the car Saturday morning or for the afternoon session if it happened in the morning session. 
uh, you're not getting anyone on a plane uh, to most places in that amount of time. So probably be whomever is closest. So could that be, say, an Oriole Servia, assuming provided he's still driving the pace car? Uh, who else? It'd be funny, uh, funny, but I mean, I'd love to see like Dario Franchitti. We need you in the car. He'd do it too. He would absolutely do it. Um, boy, Elio, I think is going to be around at a number of the uh, races when he's not in the car with Meyer Shank. Could he be the go-to guy who might be there? I think we're probably talking more this range than anything. If it's you know, heaven forbid a driver crashes in practice at the Indy 500, uh, you know, is ruled out due to injury, concussion, whatever it is where you go, look, they're going to get the car back together. Might not be out tomorrow, might be out the day after. we got a little bit of time, but we need to keep going, and our driver is not going to be in the car uh, immediately by any means. Then you got some great options to see who you can put in, you can get on the phone, who you can get on a plane. I would say the easy answer uh, would be Oliver Askew. Uh, that kid should be in a full-time entry. But assuming he is there, thereabouts, at an event um, and able, I would say he would stand out as probably the number one person. Another little sidebar to add to this. And we'll have to see how it works out once we get to Barber, for example, uh, and St. Pete and such. But it's not uncommon for recent IndyCar drivers to have clients that they coach on the road to Indy. So while I don't have an answer to this, does someone like a Oliver Askew or work down the list have a client where they would be there? And there would be a need. And while they aren't maybe there in the IndyCar paddock, uh, could they don a suit and helmet? And, you know, most IndyCar drivers, if they're going to a racetrack, they're going to bring their helmet at minimum. So uh, would say so. Would say so. Uh, That would be the guy that I would think of would probably be number one on the list. But in terms of who's going to be there, it might end up being an Oriole and Elio, a true veteran uh, than some of the younger guns. Like, you know, Zach Veach, for example, is going to be focused on IMSA. I don't think he's going to be hanging around IndyCar paddocks just hoping there's an opportunity because he does have a full-time job in another series. So there you go. Uh, Let's see, where do we go after this? We're actually down to the last couple of questions. Uh, And then I think we might dive into some below the dreaded red cut line. Uh, Brett Wells says, is Paul Page going to create an unabridged digital version of his book with him reading? Because I grew up listening to him every year as a kid in Indiana, and that would be an awesome listen. I have no idea, Brett. But I do know that our man Paul Page is fairly active on the good old Facebook and Instagram. So, since he is such a friendly person, I'd drop him a note and ask. Uh, Let's see. Chuck Beck. How you doing, Chuck? Says, MP, I'm a big fan and I appreciate your efforts in cheering me up during this past year. Hang in there. What kind kind of you to say that? Says, and a big shout out to your wife, Shabrell, as well. I hope she's doing well. A couple of questions. 
what is your favorite obscure IndyCar or Champ Car team to cheer for or support? Uh, let's see. Uh, many of them are obscure in a variety of ways. So uh, if we're talking the non-professional person and just the fan, who do I root for? Okay. Uh, I assume we're talking about the current teams, not uh, 30 years ago or whatever. Well, I've got a soft spot for my man Bordet. Not a surprise. So whomever he drives for, in this case, Foyt, got a soft spot for him there. So, you know, uh, always, I mean, I always cheer for everybody, maybe barring one or two dickish drivers. But for the most part, I mean, I just want everyone to do well. So I guess I'm kind of a homer like that. But uh, of the ones that get a little bit of extra love, um, Bordet, obviously, the uh, the French ride of my hamburger. Um, you know, got to love me some Rossi. A California boy there for sure. And I know I'm naming drivers, not necessarily teams. I'll get to the teams in just a sec. But, you know, there, there's a handful of drivers in here for sure. I'm like, eh, hope they have a good day. Live a good life. Fulfill themselves. Um, I probably apply that to everybody, though. Uh, if we're talking the Indy 500, I know that I am just privately and internally rooting for my pal Beth Peretta and her Peretta Autosport team to have a great Indy 500 and for Beth and her team to walk away and have a big smile on their face and great satisfaction. That's for sure. She has been through the war. She's been through some serious hell, uh, a lot of which we actually captured in a podcast a month and a half ago that I'll get ready sometime soon here. But, yeah, been a, a friend for quite a while and just, yeah, can't wait for her to uh, uh, hopefully have a really good time at Indy. Um, the Meyer Shank team, I've always loved Mike Shank just cause I've known him since his uh, Atlantic team ownership days. And yeah, he's just one of us. He, he's as blue collar as I am. And so there's just some great sensibilities right there. Uh, so huge, huge love for those guys and that team. Uh, one of my oldest pals, Matt Swan, who I give hell to whenever I mention, because, Hey, that's what you do with friends. He's there now. So you know, I it always gives me a big smile when they do well. Um, and so, yeah, I would say just depends on what kind of fan you are. What do I mean by that? Well, for example, in Formula One, there's the Tifosi. Those would be the fans, super fans of Formula One. Formula One? No, Ferrari, sorry. Uh, the Tifosi. They are just dedicated all things Ferrari. I'll tell you what, I've been a fan of a select Ferrari driver too. I've never given a flying fart about Ferrari because I've never been the route for the biggest team, the the sexiest team. I've just, I've always had the give me the David uh, and let's go and try and knock down the Goliath. That's just to core part of who I am. So that's why a guy like a uh, Mike Shank really jumps out and, and I gotta love him because he's trying to do big things starting from the absolute ground with nothing. Oh, I guess that answer was wrong because we got uh, fire trucks coming and they're going to rip me out of here. Um, after that, I mean, I have been a fan of the Dale Coyne team for a long time. Our friends, uh, Jimmy Vassar, James Sully Sullivan as well. Uh, very similar in the uh, underdogs trying to punch above their weight. Uh, 
then again, I look at a team like a Ganassi, and you go, well, wait a minute. They're the defending champions, right? They've won a million championships. Aren't they kind of the Ferrari? Yeah, boy, I don't know. They, they strike me as more of like a golden era Williams Formula One team, right? Super successful, but as down-to-earth as you're going to get. Like going and talking with the team, they're just they're your people. I love that about them. They're not the only ones, so don't get me wrong. You can go and talk to the Carlin boys and girls. You can go and talk to a lot of the folks, Aaron McLaren SP, Andretti, and so on and so forth. But I guess the answer I'd throw back is, what kind of fan are you? Are you the one that, you know, I love me the Lakers or the Yankees? And, you know, I've never been that person. So the big, powerful, all-conquering teams... Not so much a fit for that uh, that inner David versus Goliath guy. So give me the smaller ones. The ones are going to pull the upsets for the most part, and those are the ones that uh, I keep a, a special private eye on, Chuck. I also say with a couple of books coming out soon, Paul Page you mentioned as well, uh, what are some of my favorite racing reads, either in or out of print? Oh, boy, I need to turn to my right. Uh, I've started reading Mark's Mark Dill's book um, about uh, the original Speedway and back back in the day. I've started that. Uh, what else do I have? I, I'm embarrassed to say I got a note from my pal Rick Schaefer, amazing guy and amazing author of IndyCar books, and it asked if I'd read uh, um, his most recent book, to which I said no. I'm staring at it right now. It's sitting on the shelf. Uh, along with a number of others I need to get to. So, yeah, I apologize there. Uh, Don Prudhomme's autobiography that he did with my pal Alana Schur, she's just quadruple awesome, by the way. Uh, That's maybe the road I would send you down. That is uh, his autobiography, Snake, I think it's called, is just silly, silly good, Chuck. Uh, What else can I point to? I'm just... I hate to say it, I'm grabbing things that are close to me. The one that I've been enjoying probably the most, and he's a subject of another podcast that I did that I have to get finished and and put out here. Just spoke with him a couple weeks ago. Richard Noble, uh, land speed record holder, and also just, oh my goodness, his book, Take Risk, is... Oh, it's a delight. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. It is fascinating, and I love how it is written. Uh, It's just written in a uh, take-you-back-to-when-it-happened manner compared to talking about something that happened a long, long time ago manner. Uh, Makes me feel like I'm standing there next to Richard, invisible participant in, uh, in the tales that he's sharing. So... Yeah, um, love it. Just love it. So got a lot more, brother. I think I know I've mentioned this on the show a couple times. Uh, When we had to move uh, latter stages of 2019, uh, had to move to a uh, uh, different little kind of townhome-ish type thing that's uh, right next to the hospital that we frequent and the clinics that we frequent, Um a accessible uh, place as well that we're in. It's just smaller uh, from what 
uh, we'd lived in for about 10 years. And so moved here out of necessity, all positive, again, nothing negative to say here. Uh, Just had to realize that an entire office filled with bookshelves was not going to be possible. So I went from having my office where there are really no posters or anything hung on the wall because all walls were filled with bookshelves, five pretty dang large bookshelves. Uh, I've got two uh, right now, and I've actually just put a third in, which is fairly small, and it's got doesn't actually have books on it, but just mention all this because, man, I love this question whenever it comes in. seems it comes in at least once a month. And I would love to rattle, just turn to the right and rattle through all kinds of stuff. 90% of my motor racing book collection is sitting in crates in storage and has been for about a year and a half. So uh, hopefully someday soon um, when I can put together enough money to get a house purchase going for my wife and I. Well, Chuck, you're going to send in this question again. And I am going to hopefully dazzle you with a half hour response of just spinning around and around in my chair rattling off titles so just can't do it right now unfortunately my friend cody oakwood hey mp i hope all is well finally got around to watching born racer and seeing the reaction of the crew after dixon's nasty nasty crash at indy got me wondering do you know of any crew members quitting the sport after witnessing a horrible crash says how many drivers deal with crashes uh, seems to be well documented, but what about crew members? Is there any formal mental or emotional support provided by IndyCar or the individual teams where a crew member can help, can get help if they find themselves in a really bad place after witnessing an on-track tragedy? And Cody, that might be among the best questions we have received on the show uh, in a good long while. Thank you for sending this in give you quick cold answers first and then we'll dive into this just a little bit deeper um, after that would say on the IndyCar front there's always the ability to go and visit the medical experts but I'm unaware if we're talking at the track and I know you didn't say specifically if they're struggling at the track when it happened but I'm unaware of mental care professionals being part of that traveling medical team there could be and i just don't know about it so i'm not claiming it isn't uh something that is offered i just i don't know about it if they do would say i i know of indycar doing referrals uh when there's a need uh i was at i know this is going way back i think it was like the 98 or 99-9500, and I had some, I don't remember if I broke a tooth. I don't remember what it was, but all of a sudden, the right side of my face was feeling like I got knocked out 50 times. Um, And going to IndyCar Medical, or whatever staff at the time, they were able to give me uh, a couple of referrals of, hey, you know, you might ring this, that, or the other. Didn't point me to... uh, the, the racing dentist, Dr. Jack Miller, by the way, don't know why. Um, but so I know that's not mental, but it, I was really surprised because I'm like, well, I mean, I know I could pick just randomly someone, but I'd rather go to someone they know and can at least say, yeah, this guy's not, not going to drill too many holes in the side of your head. Uh, so there was 
the ability for referrals there. I would think that there would be the ability for that as well if a crew member uh, or any member of the IndyCar community, you know, it wouldn't have to be a crew member, could be someone in the media, could be a yellow shirt, could be anyone. Uh, I'm positive that there's the capability for referrals if needed. We're talking specifically on the crew member side. Most teams have some form of human resources department, whether it's internal or an external service that is hired that should be able to point someone to such a thing and or those crew members have name whatever healthcare system you're a part of uh, have their own so they can go and uh, seek on their own the part that i wanted to just cover off here cody to close which is the non kind of black and white who to talk to where to talk to i'm really proud to see more drivers talking about mental frailties when they experience them mental problems when they experience them because this is one of the things about our sport and not every sport is all about toughness but ours there's such this decades forever long thing of all the drivers are heroes and tough as nails and the mechanics you know they just hit their fingers with hammers all day long and don't feel it and you're just tough as can be and you can put them in a 27 layer fire suit and bake in the sun and they're just never going to complain and never feel tired and never 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 it's a lot of tough guy tough gal type thing and i've appreciated seeing not every driver but more some drivers start to say hey yeah you know this this i'm struggling with this i'm bothering this is bothering me or if you have issues please reach out to um you know this resource or that resource but it's not a commonly accepted thing yet cody the showing weakness (sighs) that's still not an accepted component in our sport just like it isn't in the National Football League. And so is the lack of acceptance just all about this caveman, cavewoman, me tough kind of thing? Yeah, to some degree. But there's another element to it that I would say is it's at least half of the equation, and that is reliability. Can I trust you? The proverbial... If you were in a foxhole in a war with so-and-so, would you trust the person next to you? Exposing your weaknesses, whether it is physical, ailment, you've got, you're fighting something terrible, you've got cancer and don't want your team to know about it, you've got a broken bone, but you don't want to let people see it because they're going to take you off of your duty, your responsibility, your knee, you blew out your knee, but you just want to get the shots and tape it up and do the pit stops because if they take you off that left rear tire, you're afraid that they're never going to let you back because you weren't willing to push through it and fight through it. 
again, it's the same thing you hear in some other sports as well. Can't you play through it? Oh, you're weak. Oh, I played the whole season with knees, arms, and everything blown up, but I didn't stop, did I? What's wrong with you, you wimp? There's the pride and strength and toughness side, but then there's also the, oh, man, what if what if I blink? You know, what if I let this mental illness that I'm dealing with? What if I let this physical ailment or illness that I'm dealing with, even if it's a small, small thing, not a debilitating thing, what if I let that out? What if that gets seen and heard and witnessed? Will they trust me in that proverbial foxhole? It's all about trust and accountability. If you're going to go over a wall, if you're going to be allowed to put tools in your hands and touch a race car, an Indy car, and make sure things are tight and right and ready to race, there is absolutely a phenomenally high level of trust that is required. That's where I think you get the, man, that thing really shook me. But I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm just going to be quiet. I'm going to put my sunglasses on and I'm just not going to say much. I'm going to keep my head down and I'll just suffer in silence and hope that I get through it. Or I have uh, my back. Oh my God. My back is wrenched and twisted so bad, but uh, I'm going to swallow whatever pill it is. I'm going to take whatever uh, cortisone shot. I'm going to whatever. I'm, uh, the minute. I look like a weak or wounded member of the herd. I know I'm going to get taken down and swallowed whole. Say that's the thing, Cody, that I don't know if we're at a place where the ability to be totally honest with each other in our beloved sport, not just IndyCar, trust me, spread this across every other form of professional racing. Um, I don't know if we're at a place collectively in the sport where uh, wellness physical or mental is held in high regard uh, as it should be i don't i would hope we'll get to a place where both would but i don't know if we will i can tell you just super quick anecdote and this was a little bit of that veteran correction being applied to me on this very subject uh 1996 uh molson indy toronto there with the general racing indy lights team doing our usual post race you know we raced just before the uh car indy car race doing the usual routine outside breaking down uh, and packing up and I think we cleared out everything under the tent, packed all that away. Last thing to do, take down the tent poles, let the uh, awning framework down, pull the uh, awning off of the framework and fold it up. We're in the midst of doing that. Myself, a couple other crew members, uh, our man Michael Cannon, who's with Ganassi now, uh, one of our great beloved friends and mentors, race engineer Burke Harrison, and Burke and I were doing something. I think it was pretty much he and I outside, just outside at that point. We had noticed that things went silent. 
turns out that's down the way little ways down from where we were paddocked uh the fatal crash involving one of my heroes jeff krosnoff took place that's why the honda indy Tor- or the molson indy toronto went from this loud cacophonous thing taking place around us uh we we're in the middle of it you know on the inside in our paddock and it went completely silent and it wasn't the oh they're under yellow but like eerily silent and learned quickly that crash involved jeff i don't i don't remember how all the information came in but it wasn't long before learned that you know jeff had been killed and it wiped me out and how i don't remember what i said i don't remember how i said it but you know i'm 25 at the time Burke would have been, I don't know, 40, 45, um, you know, married, couple kids and all that. I'm still young-ish. And I remember Burke just stopping me, saying, hey, it happened. You don't have to be modeling about this. You don't have to be, oh, my God, and, you know, over the top and, right? Get yourself together. And I thought it it struck me, and I did. It's kind of that alarming response I wasn't expecting. If anything, I thought he might share in my feelings. For all I know, he had those same feelings, but he sure as heck was not making them public to the team. And again, I really hope that this changes at some point in time. I mean, you don't want everyone walking around blubbering and crying about every little thing. Again, I, I'm not saying that's where things should go, but just the ability to be honest with one another and not to think less of one another for being honest. I hope that's a place where we can get to, but it, this was a old head given a young head, um, a bit of a clarity moment. Hey, can't change what happened. It happened. Get to work. Get get yourself together and keep doing your job. Okay? Now's not the time to let this thing unwind you. Uh, especially not here. Especially not now. And I will say that that Cody stayed with me my entire career. And I, it's still there today. And so when I see something bad happen, you mentioned Scott's crazy crash. I saw that happen from high atop turn one. And yeah, holy, you name it, uh, something, you know, your stomach gets twisted into a knot, of course. But the yelling, oh my God, and shrieking and some of the other stuff, which I would say is a natural reaction. Nope. That's, that got turned off. Uh unplugged and thrown away back in 96. Um, But the ability to still feel that and process it exists, just not so much in the moment. Uh, All right, we have gone past the usual hour and a half or so that I try and dedicate to the show each week. Uh, Do know that there's a couple of questions here below the line. Uh, So let me see if I can knock out a couple of these quickly because I know a few have been sent in. 
uh, at least once or twice. Uh, Bob Gravel, how far out do teams have to tell IndyCar that they're going to be bringing in their car? Um, I assume you mean entering a race. What's the closest to the day of the race that somebody's ever just shown up and been like, yo, we're here? I don't know, Bob. Uh, I would have to know 100-plus years of IndyCar racing to answer that, so I don't know that. Um, I don't know. I wish I could answer that, uh, but I don't know. Uh, I'm not aware of IndyCar in modern era really being willing to turn people away, but you got to keep in mind that everything from uh, apportioning pit spaces to equipment hey here's timing and scoring device to oh so you want fuel oh hey you want tires right it's more than just hey we're going to turn up with our car it is do we have again if we're maybe talking an oval or something like that garage space what is or isn't dedicated not saying any and all of these things could not be made available within a couple of days notice but just sharing that the actual let me check a lot of boxes to make sure that all the things that you need, you're put on the entry list, right? The entry list is updated. Uh, just a lot of little, hey, oh, hey, a parking pass. You might need a this, you might need a that. Here's all the things. Would say that off the top of my head, at least a week is what they would like. But, um, you know, I don't think they'd turn too many away unless it was truly kind of a reckless, like, Eh, we've had the car the whole time. Uh, we've had a driver. We've had the potential to do it, but eh, we just decided the week of the race to turn up. Uh, I think there might be, in some instances, IndyCar going, and that's nice of you to do that, but guess what? Pay a little more care for us and our people, and uh, we'll see you next time around. Uh, let's see. Matthew Kooks? Kooks? I'm... I apologize. I'm probably murdering your last name. K-U-E-K-E-S. Uh, if it isn't Kooks, I'm going to be disappointed because that'd be a phenomenal last name, Matthew. Uh, he says, random question. How did IndyCar pit boxes and timing stands develop into a completely different thing from what is used in the NASCAR sports car Euro formula world? Um, that's an interesting one. Well, We've had a variety of timing stands get used over the years in IndyCar, so there's never really just been one. Uh, they've evolved fairly significantly. I would maybe just throw this question out a little wider, Matthew, and say, you know, they all evolve into the direction of what's needed. So if we think about Formula One, you will have a timing stand that is really more communication than anything, limited numbers of people, knowing that behind them in the garage is a massive number of people with far more computing power and you name it. So uh, there's no need to put every single need uh, to run and administer a race on that timing stand sitting out there because you've got most of that infrastructure in the garage. Uh, sports car racing, uh, you often have three to four drivers at races, so it's not uncommon to have a bigger timing stand, one that might have an extra uh, level. 
uh, because you're accommodating more people trying to stay plugged in to the happenings of the race. Uh, also would say uh, with the general functioning in sports cars, there tends to be a lot of stuff consumed outside of a standard two hour and 40 minute race. So if you're talking six, 10, 12, 24 hours, uh, whether it is fuel, it is tires, it is, you name it, it becomes a small industrial complex for each team under the tent that is constantly working through, uh, content, these tires, Hey, we need to get these off and those out and over and changed and move through. Uh, we need to have a timing stand that can support information coming in from the car strategy, all the aforementioned extra amount of people to run things, knowing that there's often multiple cars per team, uh, the need for power, the need for nitrogen, uh, you're servicing a lot of things that can often be the hub for all those things. So, um, it, it's more of a, a workhorse than just a place to sit and stare at computers. NASCAR, little bit similar to what you see with some sports car teams with extra tiers and layers built onto the timing stand overhead. Obviously they don't have multiple drivers per car, but it's kind of a thing and they've just done it bigger and larger. Uh, they don't have big refueling tanks. They don't have refueling tanks. They have the uh, dump cans. So, again, I mean, each series tends to develop into what they need and make that happen. So I don't know if I've answered your question, but um, it's different across each series you've outlined here for what they need and where people do their jobs in relation to the race that's being administered and servicing all the things and all the content that comes in and out. Uh, let's see. Bob Gravel. What are the odds? The next chassis isn't made by Delara zero. Uh, Bob Gravel again, if a third engine manufacturer was found, which teams do you think would switch? Does it depend on the manufacturer? Uh, it absolutely depends on the manufacturer. If, uh, a terrible manufacturer were to sign on as the third supplier, I would say you might have almost none, or one, <laughs> uh, and that team would have to be taking a lot of money to take a dive, basically. So, yeah, 100% depends on who it is. Um, you would have to think, well, Chip Ganassi Racing started off with Honda, went to Chevy, came back to Honda. Andretti Autosport started off with Chevy, went to Honda, has been with Honda. We heard last year they were thinking Chevy. We don't know if that was just a negotiating tactic to get more out of uh, Honda. Uh, I mean, that'd be a smart tactic. I'm sure it's been used a million times before. So I know there are some of the teams with both camps that wish and or get a little saucy from time to time that they aren't embraced to the same degree as one of the big, big teams that get seems to get most of the love. Say those teams might be prone to switching somewhere where they feel like they could be number one. Um, so yeah, definitely depends who it is. Think about the ones who have switched camps at least once, uh, if not twice. And think about those who maybe don't feel they're number one on their manufacturer's love list. And you probably have your answers in there, brother. Uh, monkey at Nile Sinex 
from the Twitter says, when will the IndyCar community do an iRacing intervention for Tony Kanaan? He seems to race at all hours. Keep in mind, he's no longer a full-time race car driver. And he has energy that is inhuman. So the fact that he needs to expend that and burn that off all hours of the day and night, cycling, fake cycling, lifting weights, uh, training, uh, with our man, Jim Leo, uh, I racing, I expect a cooking show from Tony Kanon. I expect flipping houses from Tony Kanon. If I don't see Tony Kanon on an episode of street outlaws driving the crow mod or, uh, replacing the ax man or whatever at some, uh, no prep street race, I'll be very surprised. Uh, he needs to be on wipeout. Uh, what else? Unplugged. Tony Kanon unplugged. I don't know if he plays an instrument, but we'll just assume that he does. I want to see Tony Kanon doing everything. This is maybe something for those of you who are still here at the end of the episode need to get some ideas going. Uh, what exactly do we need to have Tony Kanon doing at all times to keep himself occupied? I bet we can come up with a pretty amazing list. Okay, let's see. Where else are we going here to uh, shut her down? Uh, Brittany, how you doing? Brittany, I don't know if you've sent in a question before. If you have, I apologize for forgetting. And if not, thank you for sending this in. Has IndyCar ever raced the road course at Brainerd Raceway in Minnesota? Do you think it deserves consideration as a future venue? I would have to do a little bit of research here, Brittany. I know my father raced at Brainerd back in the day. Um, he mentioned loving it. I know Can-Am was at Brainerd. Um, trying to think if IndyCars have been there. I don't know why I think the answer is no, but I'm probably also very, very wrong. Um, trying to think. I believe I have been there once. Uh, just once. Uh, how's this? I'm fairly convinced I'm wrong about the IndyCar angle. I do recall reading in, I think, the 60s. It seemed like back then the USAC, Dirt, and you name it, and what we would call today the modern IndyCar series raced just about everywhere um, once. And so it's an assumption here, but I got to believe IndyCar was there at least once. I know Can-Am was. I know that it was was really a big home for a lot of SCCA-type racing um, and was fairly popular and well-regarded. But, yeah, it's definitely fallen off the uh, the map a little, uh, a lot. Do I think they should go back? I mean, I love when we talk about, you know, retro throwback-type stuff. I am unaware that it is actually still active in terms of a track. But even if it was, um, you know, the the safety minimum safety standards, the FIA safety expectations, I don't think it would be anywhere close to meeting those. Therefore, the chance of IndyCar going there would be very slim. I'll tell you what would be amazing though, if it's still operational and I've forgotten, is for my pal Mike Lashmitt and the. Uh, vintage indie series to go there now that would be a lot of fun uh david crawley says marshall with the closing of the hole in the underwing and the addition of the strakes for 
super speedway running is there any concern with the car possibly getting upside down again during a spin says blessings for you and chabrell thanks david no uh all the spin abatement safety items that were attached to the car a couple years ago are still there uh it means that getting sideways it's making a lot of downforce to keep it stuck to the ground um spinning backwards uh the the blowover flaps whatever they're called the the aka nascar roof flaps uh meant to deploy uh spoil air from being able to do that am i saying it could not happen no of course there's always a chance depending on angle of the hit and how this happens or that whatever uh but for the most part just what we've seen recently say at indy with a car spinning uh, with all the safety devices on there. Um, Tino Belly, a uh, friend of the show and just really smart, awesome guy with, I wish I had 1% of Tino's aerodynamic knowledge. I have amassed whatever amount that I've gained over uh, an adult life spent motor racing. Yeah, it's still like not even the edge of Tino's pinky thumbnail worth of knowledge compared to his he good folks at delara uh they came up with some uh some methods that have only proven to work and so the number that i heard for the downforce addition that was tested is 180 pounds now again that number can float a little bit based on the day and the ambient and the thickness of the thinness of the air you know barometer this and that and the other uh number could change a little bit but regardless heard 175 180 pounds of downforce it's a good thing but not a crazy thing where uh, the cars are going to be going so quickly now that uh, if they were to spin uh, they would exceed the ability for uh, the car to use those safety devices uh, in extreme yaw or uh, getting turned around to have it just exceed those devices and do very bad things um all right where are we going here to close uh ian keyworth you ask about any news on the commentary team for this year's indycar series might have seen a story that i put up today about uh, nbc finalizing where all the races will be shown and when they also mentioned who's on the commentary team sorry as i try to avoid burping in your ear uh you mentioned is it the regular lineup of paul tracy etc yes it is the one thing I can mention, because you mentioned Paul Tracy, I understand, it wasn't mentioned in the release, but I understand Paul's uh, time in the broadcast booth has been reduced this year. And so I don't know what the number of races is at now. I'd heard it was originally cut down to a very small number. Uh, I've heard that it's gone back up a little bit. Definitely not all. Uh, I've even heard that provided Toronto happens, he's not currently on the the list for toronto so for those of you who love paul tracy you might be disappointed for those of you of which quite a number of you send in notes to the show that don't have a very positive uh attachment to mr tracy and uh either as a person or a commentator uh it looks like you're going to be getting some but not all of your wishes uh duncan idaho 11 you mentioned re-watching 2016 to 2017 indycar races came to the realization that the liveries are very dull 
says, uh, assuming I'm not exceptionally crazy, has the universal arrow kit just lent itself to more interesting designs or has this been a conscious shift? Well, keep in mind that all teams that have to work together for it to be a conscious shift. So it's definitely not that would say the swoopier, friendlier lines of the UAK 18 getting rid of the sponsor blocker as Jimmy Vassar called it. Uh, the little fin that stood out at the uh, outer edges of the floor, um, until the UAK 18 came along, which did indeed block the ability to see uh, the name of uh, partial name portion of the names of sponsors on the side pods. Uh, I would just say reshaping of the side pods. Um, gone away with the engine cover, the tall overhead intake. So it's taken away the, that little bit of billboard, but would say that what we have compared to the original Delara bodywork, then the couple iterations of manufacturer aero kits through 2017, friendlier, swoopier lines that aren't as segmented and broken up and blocked and jumping around. And, you know, it, everything just flows. And I think, therefore, you're seeing prettier, uh, more interesting designs, as you put it. All right. I got to say goodbye. Uh, I've already went longer than expected. What else is new? You should be accustomed to that right now. Uh, what I would say, uh, if I didn't get your question and you really want me to get through it, send it back in again. Uh, Caleb Bensey, you send something in here. Um, would love to answer your question uh, next week. Uh, Practice Observer, you sent in one as well. Uh, Zach Eckler, you sent in one talking about Road to Indy. Uh, send that one in again. I truly want to get to these, but I also realize that, you know, uh, we'd be here for three hours for every episode if, uh, I got to everything. And that's just not being very respectful of anyone's time. If I were to do that, uh, Kimlet seven, I think you sent in one and there are a couple others that I didn't exactly get to Ed Joris. Thank you for yours. Um, often going to struggle with 300 or so words worth of a question, 250 or 300. Um, that just takes up a lot of the show, my friends. So uh, maybe on a slower week, stuff like that would work. But um, didn't get your question. You really want me to read it, send it back in. Uh, I'm really cutting down on doing that, but I know that a number of you have some cool things you sent in. Uh, so maybe next week, our guest, Joseph Newgard, will be here Wednesday morning. So going to speak with him. Still working on uh, next week's guest, last one before the season kicks off. But uh, our man, Joseph Newgarden, can't wait for y'all to send in your goodies and have from, have from, Jesus, have some fun with our pal, Mr. Two-Time Champ Eon. I'm Marshall Pruitt. This is our Marshall Pruitt podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Speak to you here in a day or two.